Please remain standing for our scripture reading. I'll be preaching tonight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. My soul longs for your salvation. You may be seated. Now, many of you all probably know that my dear friend, uh, Pastor Pat King, died a couple weeks ago, and uh, he is the pastor at Grace Heritage Baptist Church in Franklinton. And he was uh, preaching through the book of Corinthians, and uh, their church requested that some of the interim pastors fill in, fill the pulpit. They would, their goal was to finish the book of 1 Corinthians. Pat, last sermon a couple weeks ago, was in 1 Corinthians 15. It was about the resurrection and the gospel, and then he was called home. So they asked me if I was going to preach. Uh, I could pick up at chapter 16, the first four verses. So I am not necessarily preaching this because our bulletin lists um, are, are lacking in the economy of the church. Although maybe in God's providence, that is a, a good thing. As most of you all probably know, uh, the church in Corinth was founded by Paul during his second missionary journey. He was writing to them in response to reports of many of the problems that that church was facing. And Paul obviously was deeply concerned. He had deep love for this church that he helped establish. And he was answering questions from the congregation that he had received. And it covered a myriad of topics. In chapter 7, we see sex, marriage, celibacy, divorce. In chapter 11, he discusses the Lord's Supper and how it became a mockery. It was a divided event. Some people were getting filled, some were not. It turned into a real joke. In chapter 12, the discussion of spiritual gifts, and he talks about the analogy of the body and the church. Chapter 13 is the love chapter, of course. And then in chapter 15, he talks about the resurrection and the gospel. But obviously, Paul chastises this church. He rebukes them pretty hard throughout this letter. But how does he start the letter? In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 2, we read this. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So Paul, you know, bring, rakes them over the coals, tells them all the things that they're doing wrong, but he starts out calling them saints. These are the chosen people of God. And one of the themes that seems, he seems to be pushing is unity within the church, oneness. They're, the book, the letter is winding down, and these closing remarks sometimes we pass over, but he's got a lot in just this opening paragraph of chapter 16. There's some theology in there. There's some things that are called 
for edification of the saints. And one of the themes even in this is union in Christ and unity amongst the church. Now my sermon, I kind of broke it down into questions. The first one in verse one, he opens with, now concerning the collection. Now you might be asking, well, what is this collection? And obviously it was very important to Paul because he included it in this letter. Now to be sure, it was for the saints in the church in Jerusalem. It was a specific collection that they were bringing. And if we want to discover more about it, we just look in scripture. If we flip to Romans chapter 15, we see it being discussed there. In verse 15, excuse me, chapter 15, verses 25 and 27, we read this. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem and bringing to the saints, bringing aid to the saints, excuse me, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make our contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in their material blessings. Also, we see this collection referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I've got a bunch of texts. You don't necessarily have to flip if you don't want to. But uh, I think it's an important verse telling us what was going on in this collection. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first four verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For it is a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In our text tonight and in these two verses, it's pretty clear that this is a, 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 a collection for the impoverished saints in the church in Jerusalem. And that probably begs the question, well, what's going on in Jerusalem? This is a, a epicenter of the church. Why would that place be under persecution? Why would they be having trouble? Why would they need donations and alms? And we can see in the book of Acts, in the 11th chapter, verses 27 and 28, we get a little detail on what's going on in Jerusalem. In verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So you've got a couple things going on. You've got a famine, a worldwide famine going on at this time. You've also got, as in our text points out, Claudius Caesar is ruling, and he is cracking down on his territories. And Jerusalem was getting persecuted politically and with the famine. Now, if you look a little deeper in Jerusalem, you've got two sects. You've got the Christian church, this new sect that broke away from, I guess, the nation, the people. So they're receiving 
persecution not only from Rome, but they're receiving persecution from within their, their tribe, their people. Israel is cracking it down. Jerusalem, the Jews are cracking down on each other. If welfare was coming in, it was going to the old guard first. But now, concerning the collection, we can see in our text tonight that the people in Corinth were familiar with what was going on. He just refers to it as the collection. And we must know that it is a, a formal collection. We've seen that it's coming from churches all around the world. So it's a universal or Catholic collection. It's a small c Catholic connection. And Paul here in this situation is stressing union in Christ, how believers from all around the world of dif different ethnicities, different peoples, different skin colors are one in Christ. And this is an important topic that he stresses throughout this chapter. Cor Corinth, of course, was a divided church. If you know chapter 3, that's probably the title in your Bible, the, the divisions of the church. So, you know, we had people suing one another. We had divorce. We had all sorts of divisions amongst the people in Corinth. And Paul, I think, recognizes this as a good opportunity to bring the people of God under one roof, under one, un, under one union. The Corinthian church is being recognized here for its, its division, and Paul is taking advantage of that. He is, you know, the Jews were obviously a poor people, and the Christian Jews were receiving persecution, and they were suffering under the famine. So really, that is what the collection is. It's a relief effort for the saints in Jerusalem, the Christian saints living in Jerusalem. Well, next question I, that presents itself is when? When does this collection take place? And we get the answer clearly in verse number two. On the first day of every week, so there's your answer, the first day of every week, Paul in his commentary calls it on the day of sacred assemblies. So we're getting a little lesson here about when the New Testament church is called to meet. Uh, and it's establishing pattern for Lord's Day worship. Obviously, Christ was resurrected on the first day of the week. Today, many claim that it's really not relevant when you gather to worship. As the weather's starting to change, it's getting a little nicer. It's hunting season, and I've heard this countless times. I can witness, I can worship God from my tree stand. You know, I'm away from all those sinners. I'm one with God. I can take my Bible. I can do this on the river. And a more modern example of this flawed view is youth sports. And I am not immune to this failing. Uh, today we see travel sports. It's usually on the weekend. And kids participate. And I'm here to confess that we made the same mistake. It's a very grievous error. Now, to be sure, we made sure our kids were in church every week, but that's not the proper view. We are called to assemble in the house of the Lord in our local church every week. This collection is in the local church, and so is the assembly. The pattern was set in John chapter 20, verse 1. Christ was resurrected on the first day. A week later, he appears to the 12, a Sunday evening. And this pattern is throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 
20, verses 4 through 7, we see this story. Uh, um, Paul was going throughout Greece and uh, Macedonia, and we read this in verses uh, 5 through 7. He's list, he listed the men that are accompanying him, and he went on to say, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. You don't have to worry, I'm not Paul. I can't speak till midnight, even if I wanted to. So you are okay there. But think of the thirst for God's word these people had. Uh, they waited around to hear Paul speak on the regular day, the sacred assembly, the first day of the week. And we see this pattern being set forth in the New Testament. Why did they wait five days? Because that was the day that was appointed. The day of rest, the day of worship was the first day. In Revelation 1.10, we see it being called the Lord's Day. It's normal for the church to immediately gather on the first day of the week. In the Old Testament, they gathered on the last day of the week. It's as if they were looking forward to the promised Messiah. The Messiah has now come. We rest now having it. They were looking forward, and we Sabbath on the first day of the week. When and where is worship to be given? To be given? Where is worship and giving to be take place? The first day of the week and in the local church. Secondly, I want us to see the who. Not the rock band, but uh, the who is, to be, who is to be doing the giving amongst the people of God. And it's right there for us in uh, verse number two. On the first day of every week, each of you. So that is who to be doing the giving. It's the bride. Again, he's stressing unity in the church. Most of the church at that time was Gentile. You know, because of the missionary um, journeys that Paul had done, much of the church was Gentile. The Christians in Jerusalem were largely Jewish. They, and if you remember, the Jews were very skeptical in the early church, whether Gentiles could come into the covenant community without receiving the Abrahamic sign of circumcision. There was much debate. And I think Paul here sees a great opportunity to stress the oneness of the body. In the, excuse me, in the issue under the new covenant is not one's pedigree. It's not one's parents necessarily. It's who we are in Christ. It's union in Christ. And I think this is expressed often by folks sharing their most important assets physically, their wealth. Our ability to give is one of the more tangible ways we demonstrate our faith in Christ. Do we fail to give? Are we stingy? Do we neglect the poor? What does 1 John say? 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, Paul is challenging the Corinthians, and he's challenging us 
to address the needs of our brothers in the faith. All believers are called to give. It's not just a particular group of people within the church. It's not just the wealthy family. It's not the fellow with the fancy car. It's all of us. All of us are called to give. Also, we see in verse 3, we see an allusion of the diaconate, the deacons of the church. Look at verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. I think this is a reference to the diaconate. Now, to be sure, in the modern church, there is a lot of abuse of the term deacon. Um, Throughout the New Testament, you see it in a technical sense and a non-technical sense. Some examples of it being used in a non-technical sense is in reference to Nero. In Romans 13.4, Nero is referred to as God's deacon. For he is God's deacon for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. In Romans 16, we see it referred to in the church. And it is still, again, used in a non-technical sense, but it's important that we see it. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. These are both examples of the term deacon being used in a non-technical sense. But there are examples of it being used in a more specific technical sense. And the diaconate traces its origin oftentimes to Acts chapter 6, the first three verses. And we read this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then in the last verse, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands upon them. We see here, we see the term deacon being used in a technical aspect, and they are being ordained into the church. You might be asking, well, why is this important to our text? Why is this important to us tonight to hear? I think we should know that there is much abuse of the term deacon going on in the church today, in the PCA, and oftentimes in the Baptist world. In the PCA, many churches are not ordaining men and women to be deacons. They're simply calling them deacons. And they put them on their, on their website, men and women, unordained, using the term deacon. And I think that's an abuse of what's going on, what's being displayed in Scripture. We also see it in the Baptist church. We all have Baptist friends, great church, but I think they get church polity wrong here. Typically, their deacons are serving as elders. They don't do the work and the labor and the, of the church and that is an erroneous position. The office of deacon is an extremely crucial element of any healthy church. And the work that they do is of such importance. 
in Scripture, in 1 Timothy, Paul describes the qualifications for elder. Immediately following that, he says, deacons likewise. And he's establishing a similarity between the two. Both technically are, 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 are titles for church office. So what is a technical deacon? In Scripture, the office of deacon is set forth as ordinary and perpetual. The ordinary meaning it's not anything, there's no mysterious signs or miracles going along with it, and it's perpetual. It continues until Christ returns. It is an office of sympathy and service. These men minister to the needs of the church, to the sick, to the friendless, to those in stress. Their duty is to develop liberality. Not liberalism, but liberality. They're to effectually come up with methods to collect and distribute the funds. And to not distribute the funds. I was a deacon for a long time in Columbia, Mississippi, and we often got knocks on the door, people looking for charity. And a deacon has to be prepared to also say no. Oftentimes we'd get repeat customers, and at times we'd have to tell them, no, sir, you're able-bodied, you, are, you should be at work. And that is for their benefit. Charity is a good thing, but it can be abused, and when we allow it to be abused, it's to the detriment of those receiving the charity. Uh, Paul, in verse 3, also recognized that this charity belongs to the local church. He, had, he, he says he will come along, but uh, he also recognizes that the, the people of the local congregation elect and call their deacons. And this is an important thing. And he recognized the autonomy of the local offices of the church. My next question is why, why was the Paul, excuse me, why was Paul so concerned that Corinth contribute? Paul, again, I keep saying it, is stressing unity in the bride. The Gentiles and the Jews are one. In Acts, no small kerfuffle was being raised, as I mentioned a moment ago, about the uh, circumcision, about the Judaizers wanting to require new converts to do all the things of the law of the Old Testament. In a sense, this was kind of the elites being helped by the working class. And I think this was probably humbling for the Christian Jews in Jerusalem and also edifying for the people in Corinth to go and physically help people that somewhat persecuted them in the past. Again, there's one body, one baptism, one Lord. And charity is a tangible expression of love and oneness in the body. Also, charity is a strong evidence of God's work in our sanctification. What's harder to do than to give what we physically work for and give it to another? Again, John, 1 John 3, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Furthermore, we can see order and oversight in our text. And to be sure, Christians, people, it's human nature, we give more freely knowing that proper oversight will be given over our charity. He says it will be accredited by letter. They have formal precautions in place 
It's not just a pastor taking the cash in a bag and taking it to his back office and distributing it. No, it's deacons elected by the congregation and being ordained with oversight. We see these TV commercials looking for charity. Some of the televangelists, uh, we all get telemarketers calling our homes and our places of work. And it's not always wise to give to these type people. We don't know. Wolves abound in the world. And Paul instructs us here that giving is to be done primarily through the local church. Now, am I saying never get, give to charity outside of the walls of the church? No, indeed. No, when appropriate, charity to any worthy organization is appropriate. But know that wolves abound in culture. Giving to the church is stressed in our text and throughout the New Testament. So there will be no collecting when I come. It's already done, and it's in order. Paul is stressing the, the, the regular assembly of worship and of giving. Psalm 24 Verses 1 through 2 is important for the Christian. And I will read the first two verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You know, what's the psalmist telling us here? God owns it all. And this helps the saint recognize who the authority is. We give to God, what is his? And this is so basic in worship. If we know that God owns us, it edifies us, and it's easier to give. Learning to give properly is an essential aspect of true worship. We give because God gave all. He gave his only begotten son, who was blameless, to die for us, the lamb, out he was our sacrifice for our crimes. How could we not give back to him? Giving to the local church is primary, secondary to the outside world. That brings us to the ever-important question that's probably on everybody's mind. Old Bird, how much money do we have to give? And it doesn't say completely, but it gives us some indicators. Look at verse 2. It says... On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. You know, there's an indicator there, as he may prosper. Correlations exist between the amount of prosperity and the amount of money a man should give to charity. Just imagine if our government still worked on biblical principles Imagine all the strife that occurs in our country, and it's typically based on envy. And certain politicians stoke this fire. They make their living off of strife and conflict between the classes of people. People envy what other people have, and they're told that they deserve it. And this is so destructive. If the church, excuse me, if the state modeled its it's a polity after scripture, there would be equity in giving, and much of this class envy and destruction would go away. In 2 Corinthians 8, 5, scripture tells us that we give ourselves. And Cole and I went to a marriage last night, a covenant marriage, 
And it's always fun to go to those. You know, you, you kind of you, you reflect about your own wedding, your own marriage, and the vows that are taken. But no, at marriage, when you join, the two become one flesh. There's no separate bank accounts. There's no hyphenated names. The two become one, and they are totally together, for better or for worse. And we see that in the church, too. We give, when we become the bride of Christ, we give all to Christ, all of our lives. We don't have a separate bank account for vacation home, and we don't touch that. We don't hyphenate our names. Today in the church, you see, I am an SSA Christian, you know, same-sex attracted Christian. No, all of our lives, every department of our life is given to the Lord. Like we read in Psalm 24, he owns it all. His name is written upon our hearts. When we become his bride, Christ gets the entire deal. True giving occurs when we, give, when we trust that Christ gave all, including our wealth. Christ loves a cheerful giver. The tithe is a good starting point, but I think it's just a good starting point. I think there is so much more that we can do, so much more we can do with our time and our lives. God owns us. He owns our physical assets. He owns our children. And we are to offer them to him. And he loves a cheerful and personal giver. What was the collection? It was for the poor. Why was it important? It shows our love for the body and union with Christ. When are we to give? The first day of every week when we gather to worship as the called saints. How much? God already owns it. And he loves the cheerful giver. We should give with a cheerful heart and as much as we can cheerfully give. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we close out this Lord's Day with thanks and gratitude for all that you've bestowed upon our lives. When we reflect upon the physical gifts that you've given us, we are such a wealthy nation, Lord, and we often become greedy and envious when we don't have enough. Lord, I pray that you would give us contrite hearts, recognizing that all that we do have is a gift from you. Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, and indeed, you own the hills as well. Father, we are thankful for that. Lord, we are indeed thankful that you own us and that we are safe and secure in your love. All these things I ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ, the name above all others. Amen.